Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with as we figure out how we can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. Apparently, we are reaching a lot of people interested in improving care where they live. We recently reviewed our listener data and found that this podcast reaches across the U.S. and into 55 different countries. At times, the conversations in our podcast may be more relevant to the general public. We've had some great interviews with parents and patients telling us about their experience, and we've also learned about how various parts of the healthcare system works for families in the state of Tennessee. At other times, Our conversations may have been more relevant to medical providers as we took a deep dive into a a specific project. I really hope today's discussion has something for everyone as we are literally about to go on a journey together halfway across the world to learn about neonatal global health and how some basic quality improvement concepts can impact the care of moms and babies in an entire country. I am broadcasting from the Republic of Tanzania. For you geography buffs, you'll recall that this is a country in East Africa whose coast is the Indian Ocean. It is just ever so south of the equator and is home to the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro. I've been here for the last week teaching and working with neonatal care providers from the U.S. and Germany as we have partnered with providers in Tanzania in hopes of sharing our knowledge with healthcare workers from all over East Africa. We have just finished a five-day conference in the city of Arusha, where over 200 people attended and learned better ways to provide care for infants. Nine East African countries were represented. It was an amazing experience. We get to have a conversation with the mastermind of that event today, Dr. Steve Swanson. He is a board-certified pediatrician trained in infectious diseases and tropical medicine. Dr. Swanson graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1997, and he completed his residency training in pediatrics at Children's Hospital and Research Center at Oakland, where he served as a chief resident in pediatrics. He was a staff physician and hospitalist at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital with Stanford from 2002 to 2003, and subsequently completed a postdoctoral fellowship in infectious diseases at Washington University School of Medicine, and served as an epidemic intelligence service officer for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, here's my favorite fun fact about you, Steve. You're also a self-taught neonatologist. Before we get started, we have to describe where we are sitting to our audience and what we did today. They really have to get this mental picture of where this conversation is taking place. How would you describe this plain in the Tarangiri National Park that we're overlooking? Are we in Tarangiri National Park? If so, we have one of the largest concentrations of elephants in northern Tanzania, about 4,000 elephants in the park. I don't know, Scott, how many lions did we see in the last few days? I think I counted like about 15 lions that we saw. Yeah. 
and scores of wildebeests and zebras, ostrich, ostriches, elands, and impalas. And we even saw a few hippos yeah. off in the, in the pond. And it was an amazing time to just regroup and recover from a very busy conference week. Yeah, we had a great week, didn't we? We did, absolutely. So tell uh, tell our audience about your journey to Tanzania. How, how exactly did you wind up here and what have you been doing the past dozen plus years? Well, in order to answer that, I have to kind of go back a bit. I am an American. My parents were both from the upper Midwest, Iowa and Minnesota to be precise. And my parents moved to Asia in 1962 and they proceeded to work in Asia for really almost 30 years. Simultaneous to that, my dad's sister, my aunt, was a missionary in Tanzania for 40 years. So with that international background and upbringing, I was always a little bit restless living in the United States. I was an American living in America, going to university, medical school, residency, fellowship, a stint with the CDC, but my heart was overseas. And in particularly, it was wanting to be in countries where children didn't have the same amount of health care, the same opportunities that we take for granted in the United States or North America or Western Europe, wherever you're listening. I married an amazing woman. She was an American as well, but she had been working in the Himalayan mountains doing community health work and public health work in India. And after our marriage, we sort of began to think, plan, pray about getting overseas. But that process was still going to be about 15 years in waiting. And in 2013, we took the plunge and we came to Africa to live and to work. We had been there previously on several short stints, as well as we had done time in India and in Cambodia together, Laos, other countries in South America. But this door kept opening up in Tanzania again and again. And so I wrestled with it. I wasn't sure that I could afford to move our family to Africa or take that degree of a salary cut. And Jody, my wife, said, if we don't go, we'll forever regret it. But if it's the wrong decision, we can always go back to America. And I, those words actually stuck with me, Scott. If we don't go, we'll forever regret it. But if it's wrong, we can go back to America. And we took the plunge and we moved here in 2013. At the time, I had a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 13-year-old. There's not a lot of 13-year-old girls, seventh graders in American public schools who want to move to Africa. But we told our kids that if they came to Africa, we'd give them each a dog. And they jumped at the opportunity to each have their own dog. They do have their dogs. <laughs> I have to say, we moved here and they fell in love with Africa. And it reached a point of time of some years into that journey where they said, mom, dad, we don't know what you're thinking about for the future, but we don't want you to go back to America. We want you to stay in Tanzania so we have a reason to always come home. Mm. East Africa became home to them, and it has become home to Jody and I as well. Mm. So how did you wind up running a neonatal intensive care unit? It sort of fell into my lap, Scott. I came to Tanzania, and I had my own ideas what I wanted to accomplish. But one thing about when you go and you work in global health or you work internationally, you have to hold your plants with a little bit of a loose um, hand. Uh, you don't grip tightly to what you think you're going to do because it always will end up surprising you and being different than you imagined. And when I came here, I thought I was going to do pediatric infectious disease. I thought I was going to do research on antibiotic resistance trends in East Africa. 
I thought I was going to help start a residency program to train Tanzanian pediatricians. And instead, I found myself again and again walking into this single room that they were loosely calling a NICU, a lot of sick babies in that room, and very few nurses and or doctors wanting to be in that room to care for these sick babies. About half the equipment in that room was broken. There was no real trained doctor or nurse in neonatology or neonatal nursing. We didn't have a lot of protocols or supplies, and the death rate was pretty high. It was roughly one out of every four babies or one out of every three babies some years were not going to graduate from that NICU. And in that setting, I felt myself increasingly pulled into wanting to make a difference, see if we could improve a bit the outcomes of these hospitalized babies, see if we could bring that mortality rate down from 25, 30% down to a more manageable number, and actually get better at taking care of the really small and premature babies. Because most people don't realize that in Africa, prematurity is the leading cause of pediatric death. It outranks pneumonias and diarrhea, malaria, TB, HIV, any of the common diseases that we might think of. It really is prematurity, followed by birth asphyxia and neonatal sepsis or infections. And so if you really want to do something for children, mm. you've got to do something with babies. Mm -hmm. And in that context, we decided to take the bull by the horns, see if we could create the semblance of a NICU. And that has been an eight-year journey for us, but it's been a difficult but also really amazing journey. So when we talk about quality improvement, there are some basic principles that you can sort of try to use to begin to change a situation that you find yourself in. Where did you start? Like, how did you identify, like, this is where I really need to start to begin to make a difference? Well, initially, I thought the problem was that we didn't have enough of the right kind of equipment. Mm. So I actually focused on expanding the NICU and getting in equipment that would work. And it was basic equipment, like an incubator or a radiant warmer, where a baby could be under warmer while you dry, stimulate, and assess them. I thought we needed IV pumps and greater oxygen capacity. And all of those things proved helpful. But despite doing that, and despite getting better medications and new medications that had never been used before in Africa, or I wouldn't say in Africa, had never been used before in Arusha, mm -hmm. despite that, we weren't able to budge the needle on our death rate. Our death rate remained around 25 plus percent of all babies admitted to the NICU. And we're not even talking really premature babies. We were struggling to take and save a baby that was two and a half pounds, three pounds, 28 weeks gestation, things that would be easy in the United States to help were a, a monumental struggle for us. In time, I realized that I wasn't going to change or improve outcomes in our NICU until I addressed our culture. Mm -hmm. I had to start with the nursing culture and the physician culture. And in changing culture, not in providing more equipment, we were able to start taking steps at lowering our death rate. So how did you begin to change that culture? What did you identify or what did you do to, to well, begin that, that process? So let, I can, let me first speak to the issue of the nurses. It's a very common practice in Tanzania and many African countries, for that matter, 
to rotate a nurse every three months to a new unit or ward in the hospital. There's a deep-seated belief that a nurse should be able to take care of all types of patients with equal competence and ability. So we were training nurses in the basics of neonatal nursing care, how to put an IV, how to recognize when an IV isn't working in a baby, how to warm a baby, position them, feed them, change a nasogastric or orogastric tube. And as soon as we would train those nurses within two, three months, they would be gone and we'd have a new crop of nurses coming in. So we had to make a culture change in our hospital by saying no longer can a nurse trained in the NICU rotate out of the NICU. If we train them, we keep them. Mm -hmm. And that was groundbreaking because no unit in our hospital had ever done that. Then we had to go toe-to-toe with hospital management in this Tanzanian Lutheran hospital and ask them if we could staff up and provide more nurses. Most hospitals in Tanzania will have one nurse and somewhere between 15 to 25 babies. We couldn't save a baby when one nurse was taking care of 15 babies. Mm -hmm. So we said to our administration, could we have one nurse for every four babies? And with some back and forth negotiation and them understanding what the nurse needed to do to take care of that baby, they agreed. We also changed the culture of nurses not having assigned patients. Tanzania is a very communal and cooperative culture. Everybody jumps in and everybody helps each other in their work. The problem is that when you have a unit full of very sick babies, everybody's baby is really nobody's baby. And we had to get our nurses assigned to babies so that we knew that they were going to follow through and give the medicines and chart on the baby and do the cares that that baby needed. That was our culture change for the nurses. For the physicians, we needed to engage them more, remove the fear of making mistakes, make them feel like if they didn't do something right, they weren't going to be shamed or publicly humiliated or punished. Create a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. We learn from them. We're going to be transparent and honest. Talk about our deaths and not cover them up. Where the doctors needed to actually begin to talk to the nurses. Mm-hmm. That's very unusual in Africa mm-hmm. for a doctor to engage the nurse, ask her questions, value her input, respond when she says, I'm worried about this baby. Our doctors had to step a little bit off of their podium and get more level with the nurses. And together, the third culture part we had to change was engaging the mothers. Mm -hmm. Mothers are often kept out of NICUs. They're not engaged or involved or even aware of what's happening to their babies. So we got the mothers involved in helping to feed the babies, to bathe the babies, to do direct skin-to-skin kangaroo mother care with their babies. Instead of the mothers being outsiders looking in the unit, they became active participants and co-nurses with their babies. And I don't think there's a better nurse that you can have than a mother for Mm -hmm. her baby. Right. So changing nursing culture, engaging and accompanying the physicians and getting the parents involved were huge. We did that. But the real change, Scott, 
happened when we started to bring NICU nurse educators from the United States and from Canada out to walk a journey of working with our nurses. And well, I'm married to a pediatric nurse, so I have to be very respectful of what nurses do. But there was once I saw the value of nurse training and the value of bringing NICU nurses in, not on a short-term three-day trip, but a six-month, one-year, two-year accompaniment with our nurses, working alongside, teaching them, mentoring them, loving on them, and instructing them. Once that happened, then our survival rate improved, our death rate dropped, and it became clear to me that our NICU was going to rise or sink based on the nursing more than anything else. And that's where we directed our money and our time and our energy. And we're the only unit in the hospital that does that. I don't think any other unit in our Tanzanian hospital has ever invested in their nurses like we have in our NICU. So some of the things that you've described are really some basic principles of quality improvement that as TIPQC, with TIPQC's projects, we try to do, educate nurses and doctors, get nurses and doctors working together on a project, and then integrate the parents into that too. I mean, you're describing a perfect quality improvement model. So tell me about some of the things that you've done here as you begin to change that culture. And I know talking to you over the past couple of weeks, we've spent together here in Tanzania and previous trips I've had and by email, you wanted to cut down on your infection rates. One of the problems I remember you telling me was just simple things like hand washing. How did you begin to create a culture where it's expected that you have hand hygiene and you get your people to do that, including your nurses, your doctors, your parents, or something as, as simple as the temperature management? I know we talked about hypothermia and that's such a common thing after deliveries. We deal with this in Tennessee too. <laughs> One of our current projects, we're noticing a very high rate of hypothermia. So what are some simple things that you did to improve care around, around things well, just like that? I felt like I had to go back. Before I went to Africa, the missionary doctor who built the hospital that I'm working at right now, Arusha Lutheran Medical Center, said something that I thought was very profound. He said, Steve, the, the goal is not to build an American hospital in Africa, but to create an African hospital that works for Africa. Mm -hmm. Or let me contextualize it even further. My job is not to create a American hospital in Tanzania. It's to create a Tanzanian hospital that works for Tanzania. And therefore, I have to be willing to give up some of those things that I would like to have that feel mm -hmm. comfortable to me, maybe some of the lab tests, some of the microbiologic capacity, some of the equipment, because in our context, it's just not practical. It's too expensive. It may actually be a misguided effort and come back to the fundamentals. Mm. And maybe because I'm not a neonatologist by training, but I'm a pediatrician, I think a little bit differently on these issues. And I became aware that there was four things that were really killing our babies that we had to address. The first was we had to figure out how to keep the babies warm. Mm -hmm. And that's thermoregulation. Uh, we get babies routinely transferred into our NICU with a body temperature that is below what is recordable on our digital thermometer. So that means that their body temperature is below 30 degrees Celsius, uh, excuse me, is below 30 degrees Celsius, which would be 
I have to do the math here, below 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. So imagine baby coming into your unit whose temperature is under 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Normal being, of course, 96.8. Mm-hmm. Those babies are cold stress and they were dying. So we had to find a way to keep babies warm. We also had to find a way to help babies breathe and not just help them breathe in the delivery room after we do resuscitation with them. Many people in this pod, listening to this podcast may be familiar with the program Helping Babies Breathe. I'm talking about now they're in the NICU. How do we support their breathing? I might remind people that we're working in a Tanzanian hospital. And though we're in a city that is relatively well off by Tanzanian standards, still we struggle with finding oxygen to give babies. We didn't have oxygen blenders. We didn't have pulmonary surfactant. We didn't have proper size cannulas for babies. We did not, and we still do not, have mechanical ventilators. So we had to find a low-tech way to help babies breathe, support their lungs. Thirdly, we had to help them feed and grow. We do not have total parenteral nutrition or TPN. We don't have donor breast milk or breast milk banks, human breast milk banks. We were going to have to find a way to feed babies quickly, urgently, advance their feeds quickly, get them to grow. And the last thing that became I became more aware of was that we had to find ways to keep them from getting infected while they were in our unit or infection control, infection prevention. Mm-hmm. Those are what I call sort of the four legs of the chair that we sit our NICU on, thermoregulation, respiratory support, nutrition, and fluid management and keeping babies from getting infected. Each one sounds simple. Each one was a monumental effort because we were battling culture. Mm -hmm. We were battling traditions. Mm -hmm. We were battling nurses who were not familiar with what we were doing. On the issue of feeding babies, we realized very quickly that we were going to have to fortify the breast milk in order to improve our calories, our protein, our minerals and vitamins to help a baby to grow. Well, in America, you have human milk fortifier, as you do in many countries. In Tanzania, human milk fortifier doesn't exist. So we devised a mechanism to open just a standard tin of baby formula and using a standard measuring teaspoon, give a certain amount of baby formula to a certain amount of mother's express breast milk and effectively fortify, boost the calories, help a baby to grow, help their brain to develop. Infection prevention, we were just trying to get people to wash their hands, to wear gloves when they're handling really small, sick babies with thin skin that's permeable, set up a system to change IV syringes and nasogastric or orogastric tubes on a regular basis, getting alcohol into the unit so we could scrub the IV hub, teaching nurses not to set things on counters and reattach it directly back to the IV, cleaning before they infuse medicines or drugs, handling diapers and then disinfecting their hands in between babies, reducing antibiotic use in our NICU. All of these were things we had to tackle in order to reduce the amount of nosocomial 
rapidly acquired infections and late onset sepsis in babies. Yeah, I mean, these are huge projects. <laughs> any one of these is a huge monumental undertaking in any American neonatal intensive care unit. Do this where you've been able to do it and be as successful yeah. as, as you have is monumental. And let me just interject for a second to talk about success. If I remember correctly, you care for approximately 340 premature and critically ill babies a year. Uh, higher than that. Yeah, we're What's growing, we're growing by about 11% a year. So this year oh. we're going to hit about 380 premature babies. Well, premature and term babies, about 380. Half of them are preemies and half are term admissions. And then the smallest baby you've taken care of? Was 1.3 pounds. And he was at the conference. He's yeah. now two years old. Uh, correct. Correctly. Turning two and next was month. was running all over the stage <laughs> yeah. as his mother was giving us some advice on how doctors and nurses can interact with parents. You have a survival rate of approximately 92%. 92, 93%. With 90% amongst preterm babies, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. And so you're doing things besides the, the quality improvement initiatives that you talked about where you've been able to change a culture, change the, 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 the type of care that's being delivered. You've done things like introduce pulmonary surfactant, bubble CPAP technology. Those are some of the things that were featured at the conference to teach people how to do that in, in their context and, and where they're working. And, and a really exciting thing, you published an author, an article recently. You were co-author with uh, some of your, uh, your, your pediatricians in the neonatal intensive care unit where you work. And this article is entitled, Every Breath Counts, Lessons Learned in Developing a Training NICU in Northern Tanzania. So we're going to include a link to this. This is an open access article. And if anybody in the audience is interested in, in reading further about what Dr. Swanson and his group has been able to do at the hospital here, that'll be made available to you. But uh, Steve, was there anything from the article you want to point out to our audience that you, want to make, you would like to draw their attention directly to? You know, we put the word training in the title because lessons learned in developing a training NICU in northern Tanzania, because we have always felt from the very beginning that through our mistakes and through our successes, we were going to learn and adapt and grow and that it, it was a ethical and moral obligation to train others in, in this journey of neonatology. You know, I mean, Scott, I alluded to this at the beginning. I trained in pediatric infectious diseases and I trained in tropical medicine and parasitology because I was in medical school in the 90s, residency in the 90s and early 2000s. And in that time and era, communicable diseases, vaccine preventable diseases, malaria, TB, HIV, pneumonia, diarrhea, those were the big bad boys on the block. That was what was affecting and killing children. Mm -hmm. And I come to Tanzania and I live in Arusha where there really isn't malaria and HIV rates have fallen dramatically, a real testament to the programs that PEPFAR and others rolled out to introduce antiretrovirals in the country and to reduce vertical transmission of HIV between mother and baby. And diarrhea, diarrheal diseases, still an issue, pneumonia, still an issue, but becoming less so. But I get here and I discover this whole unspoken problem of babies dying. And not just babies, but premature babies. Premature babies that are not being counted in official government registries and in statistics 
because these are babies that are being born in villages that never get counted. These are babies that are born and die within a few hours of birth and get recorded as a stillbirth or a late term miscarriage. These babies matter and they should count, but they're not being accounted for in most statistics. And I began to encounter mothers who had lost two and three and four babies consecutively. Mm. I took care of a mother last year who had lost 10 consecutive pregnancies and now was in her early 40s and didn't have a, a living child. And in a culture and in a region of the world where children really, really matter greatly and give a woman a sense of purpose and dignity and social value, rightly or wrongly, that's the reality. It began to break my heart that not only was the magnitude of these deaths so high, but they weren't being counted and nobody was thinking about the social impact on women mm-hmm. and on their families as well. And so I, we started this NICU and we decided that in order to make it succeed, we were going to have to do it in a low-tech manner. So when I say that 90% of our premature babies survive, or that 75% of babies under two pounds, 75% of babies under two pounds are living in our NICU, that's without a mechanical ventilator. Wow. That's without a PIC line. That is a baby that we are, we are giving surfactant quickly to. Some of these babies are by giving them surfactant by laryngomask airway. Mm-hmm. Some of it is by intubation, but then we put them onto bubble CPAP. We adjust the centimeters of water pressure. We position the babies. We don't have nasal intermittent positive pressure ventilation. We don't have mechanical ventilation. We don't intubate babies except to give them surfactant in the cases of the smallest ones. We feed them rapidly. We introduce feedings within 12 hours. We put them up against the mother and we watch them survive. And if the last eight years was figuring out how to help babies survive, the next eight years is going to be for us to figure out how to help these babies thrive. Mm -hmm. Because as we got better at saving the babies, I became more aware of some that just weren't growing at the rate that they should. And we need to find ways to even roll out easier ways to help small and sick babies regain their birth weight and, and grow normally thereafter. But I want to come back to, it's a low-tech solution that emphasizes investment in nurses, changing culture, engagement with the doctors, welcoming, welcoming the parents. It's not equipment-based. It's not a single class that people come and teach. It's a long journey of accompaniment that we believe, I believe, is starting to raise a discussion about neonatology that wasn't here eight or nine years ago. I mean, the excitement, you've been at the conference, Scott, Mm -hmm. the 185 doctors from and nurses from nine countries representing almost 70 hospitals excited and talking about how they can take simple concepts of thermoregulation, respiratory support, feeding, nutrition, and infection prevention back to their hospitals and improve their survival rates and save babies. I mean, I feel like we're on the crest of something that's 
is big and it's going to sweep across Africa. Yeah, that's what I want to talk to you about next because conference was so exciting. I mean, there were several U.S. doctors there who have, of course, attended all the big conferences in the United States and a couple of Tanzanian doctors, I think, that had attended some conferences in the United States. And the consensus was the excitement around this conference, the experiences that people had, the knowledge that was being gained, the friendships that were being made is going to lead to something else. I know last year was the first year of this conference. There seems to be, as you mentioned, a, a wave building, teaching people how they can use some of these simple concepts to improve care in the various countries where they live, the various hospitals and settings where they work. I'm just curious, any stories from last year's conference or anything yet from yeah. this year's conference that you're already hearing well, from people? last year we trained a... Ethiopian nurse, and then later we brought out an Ethiopian doctor and let her spend two weeks in our NICU and tried to teach her what we had taught at the conference. Mm -hmm. And some six months ago, I got an email that that we now have a granddaughter NICU, that we trained this Ethiopian <laughs> NICU, and they have in turn started another NICU in a different government hospital, and hence it's a granddaughter that That's we have. Great. And I, I love that idea. I really think that the, that when you do a conference like this, it's part vision and it's part realism. We have to give them the dream that it's possible mm -hmm. that these small and sick babies can and do survive, that we have to stop making excuses that in, that this is Africa or this is only possible in high income countries no, it is possible in throughout Africa. Mm -hmm. And once they have that vision and they see what's possible, then we try to give them practical tools and simple steps. We know that at the conference, we taught certain skills, like how to place a chest tube that most hospitals aren't ready to use. But every hospital can warm a baby, help them to breathe, mm -hmm. put them directly skin to skin with mother in the form of kangaroo care. And feed a baby. Yeah, and we spent a lot of time on that, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So I thought Mark, Dr. Martha McConey got up in, in her talk, and she's one of the doctors at uh, Mumbile, right? Yeah, Mumbile so, National Referral Hospital. And she had a, a slide that said, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, we are not low resource. Oh, I love that. And she had it crossed through, and she's like, all the resources are actually sitting here in the audience. We are a high resource thing. Yeah. We, we've got to figure out how to make, yeah. make these things work. And that's, that's an important point because I'm also guilty of that, using the term low-resource country or low-income country. But imagine your average East African or your Sub-Saharan African who gets repeatedly told that they're low-resource or low-income. And when this lovely Tanzanian neonatologist stood up and said, we are not low-resource, look at the resources in this room, Everybody broke out in a spontaneous applause, and it, it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to say for the audience that in the eight years, nine years that we've been working in neonatology in Tanzania, we have seen a lot of deaths, and we've seen a lot of sorrow and sadness, and we've made a lot of mistakes. But somebody said to me before I, I left the States to come to Tanzania that if I, if I come with the right heart— that Africa will give me more than I will ever give back in return. And that has been our story. Mm -hmm. I am a better human. I'm a better 
and smarter doctor, a better clinician, and definitely a better person by having the opportunity to live and work in this beautiful country and to join forces with Tanzanian doctors and nurses who just blow me away with their heart and their passion and their intelligence. Yeah. As we wrap this up, I want to come back to our discussion about parents again. One of the cool things that brought a tear to my eye too at the conference was the mama stories. Safari yesterday, we got in from the safari yesterday and there was a dad there that recognized you who was one of the safari car drivers. Tell our audience what this dad was sharing with you. He was talking about his experience in the NICU, the sounds that he, sounds like to me he was describing PTSD. He said the depression he was dealing with. I want to give our fathers just a chance to talk real quick. Yeah, last year for the conference and this year for the conference, we brought up mothers and grandmothers whose children had survived and grandchildren in the and we let them discuss their experiences. Uh, I think, Scott, you and I talked about it afterwards that we need to start having dads coming up there as well. Mm-hmm. And right around that whole discussion we were having, I walk into this safari lodge and a man approaches. And this is often the case. They recognize me and I'm not quite sure. And he says, I'm Baba Kalen. And I looked at him and he <laughs> immediately knew that he was the father of the smallest survivor we've ever had in our NICU, a 1.3 pound, 26 week preemie, who his wife had come with the child to speak to all of our conference attendees about her experience. And he described, yeah, the, that how difficult it was. He knew that his son had been in the NICU for over three months. Mm-hmm. He had two children at home that he was taking care of because Tanzanian mothers do not leave their babies at any point during their time in the NICU. Mm. So he was in effect, in effect being the sole breadwinner and also a single parent to two children while his wife was in the hospital with their third child who was premature. And he described the alarms going off mm-hmm. and then he imitated the sound of the monitors perfectly. Mm-hmm. But then I think he said something at the end. He said something to the effect of like, continue this very good and important work. Don't stop. Yeah. It's a good message. So as we wrap up, this is a question I ask everybody, and I'm fascinated to see what you're going to say. If you could have a big billboard anywhere in Arusha, in Minneapolis area where you're from, up in Minnesota, anywhere in the world, and that billboard could have some message of encouragement. It could have some slogan, some saying. Thousands, tens of thousands of people would see a day. What would you have it say? That's easy. Every breath counts, no matter how small. Love it. (laughs) And I I won't lay claim to be the originator of that saying, but that's what we put in our article. That's what we put on the book Mm. that we wrote. Every breath counts. I think it speaks to the value Mm. of life, the importance of breath. And then when you add that second part of the phrase, no matter how small, it speaks to vulnerability, and prematurity. Mm-hmm. And I also say to my team that I believe every baby deserves the opportunity to go home with their mother or their father, no matter how small, no matter how sick. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do in East Africa, how hospitals send 
baby's home with their mothers and their fathers. Well, Steve, I appreciate you taking the opportunity to spend time with TipKC today for sharing us your quality improvement journey, even though it's been in a setting that's different from most people in the United States. I think our audience has heard there's a lot of similarities and all the messages that you shared with us today are things that we can continue to try to work on relationships between nurses and doctors and communications, communication with our parents, getting them integrated and just paying attention to the simple things uh, and remembering that every breath does indeed count. Uh, We're going to include some information in uh, our podcast notes to Steve's organization, Tanzanian Children, correct? Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in reading more about that and hearing more about what uh, Dr. Swanson and the ALMC crew are doing, uh, that'll be available to you. Thank you very much, though, for uh, joining TPC's podcast, Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.